This is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. One of my favorite musical experiences is to go to an amazing jazz concert. And what I mean by that in particular is when you see a handful of super skilled people who have this ability to not just play really well when it's their turn to be on lead, but to know intuitively when it's time to back off and play a supporting role for someone else on lead. It's where they are in such syncopated rhythm and know exactly what is happening when, when to slow down, when to speed up, and when to do what to get the best possible outcome for the audience. It's just extraordinary. Well, my guest today is Gerald Leonard. With extensive background in music and productivity and culture and neuroscience, Gerald is a consultant on some of the most complex enterprise-level projects in the United States. And he does this with a mindset around leveraging this metaphor of jazz, even in how you lead others and how you lead yourself. And in this brief conversation, not only will you be inspired and I think hopefully get a new angle on what it looks like to lead, I think you'll also hear from a sage, someone who's lived life and has been able to practice these ideas, not only in complex corporate contexts, but even in his personal life creatively. And I'm confident that everyone who's listening to this will walk away with a, a richer, deeper sense of what it looks like to find your best space for you to create and put stuff out, but also to know exactly when to pause and to slow down and to create space for others. Gerald Leonard, I am so happy to have you on Converge. Welcome. Excellent. Dane, I'm really happy to be here, man. Took a little while to get, to get here, but I'm really happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. You know, uh, for, for listeners who don't, who don't know you yet, and by the way, I need to give some preamble. Poor Gerald had to go through so much work to get here. It's and, all worth it. Well, and friends who are listening, you need to understand this is an access point that you are excited to have. The stuff that Gerald does at an enterprise level, at a tech level, at a project management level, he's dealing with a level of complexity that most entrepreneurs never actually have to deal with. And he makes a lot of other people's lives a lot easier. For folks who don't know you yet, can you just you know picture yourself at a cocktail party and someone actually wants to know the answer to this question, what got you here? What's the story that you tell when you have a chance to, to share your history. Excellent. Well, I could say, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person that has, has learned to integrate four things in my life that have been a part of my life at an intimate level over the last almost uh, 59 years until my age. Mm. Music is always extremely important to me. Productivity, workplace culture, something I learned later on in life, and then neuroscience. And neuroscience was important because my son, we found that he had a couple of issues that we needed to work through. And I, I wanted to understand that. So I got into neuroscience at that time, not knowing that later on in life, as I'll share later on in our, our conversation, I had some things that I had to work through that mm. happened to me with vertigo and having to recover mm. from a neurological situation. And it happened six weeks before my TEDx talk. I'll tell you about that as we go along. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I will not let you off the hook on that one. I want to know the answer to that. So uh, those are radically uh, eclectic categories, yeah. music, productivity, culture, neuroscience. And I get that we all have winding roads. I'm in my fifties. So I know that's the gift of being in our fifties is we have a, you know, a lot behind us yep. that we can point to, but 
Those are odd spaces to go to. Let's slow the train down just for a minute. Yeah. We heard a little bit about neuroscience, but walk us through the music to the productivity and the productivity yeah. to the culture. Okay. So here's so basically, you know, I started playing when I was 10, playing music. And I started playing, I was literally playing piano and stuff. And then I got into guitar because my sister had a guitar that I loved and she wasn't playing it. So I would sneak into her room and play it. That led me to really getting into music. And I joined the band with some friends of mine. One was an amazing guitar player, no lie. At that age, he was amazing because he played at church and everything else. So I had to play the bass because I couldn't play as good as he could. But playing the bass, you had, you're, you're there to support the band and, and make everybody look good. And I had to go out and learn how to do this. So fast forward, I went to college for, for music, studied classical and jazz bass, played in Central State University. They, it was a small um, HBCU. So I actually ended up taking lessons from another professor at another college and then playing in a local symphony, Springfield Symphony in Ohio, where I got paid mm. to play and learn and play all these great, all this great music and meet all these great musicians. Ended up meeting my professor, doing my master's degree at Cincinnati Conservatory, which is a really good school. He was a bassist, but he played classical and jazz was a composer. So mm. long story short, finished my master's, moved to New York, studied with his teacher through the Manhattan School of Music, but I would slap my bass down to Juilliard. And I did that and played professionally in New York for a while. But during that time, I also was involved with spiritual things in church. And I did some ministry work for about six, seven years. Got married, mm -hmm. had a couple of kids and decided music was really burning for me. And I was like, I really want to get back to playing and traveling. And I realized that having two kids and growing up in Central Florida with my dad, who was always there, you know, just this ever presence in my life. I could not see myself going on the road like some of my friends were doing and just being away for months and letting my wife and others raise my kids and me not be there. I, I, yeah. I, I saw the, the value and importance of being dad and being in my kid's life. So I, that's when I got into T IT. Well, let's, let's just pause there for a second and I'll earmark it to get to the IT bit. But I, I just want to pause and affirm, I, I can so relate. I was a, a professional photographer for about 12 years and somewhere in the middle of that found a little bit of success and also found success in the category of writing and speaking. Yep. So I was out on the road shooting, also out on the road speaking. It was having a, an erosive impact on my family Yeah. and and had to make the shift. And it was so frustrating because I saw all these young folks who didn't have dependents and, and responsibilities and they could go do their thing. And I realized that if I... I had to pick yeah. one or the other. And I got to carry the good things I got from that, but but it was painful. Was that painful for you to get off the road? Well, it was a little challenging, but honestly, I, I figured it this way, that if it was meant to be in my life, that it would come back. And mm. that, that it was more important to me because of how I grew up, because of my mom and dad and how I grew up, it was more important to me to be an ever-presence in my children's life and that I wanted them to know me, but also see me because I, I figured, you know, the best way to to help someone grow is to, for you to be a model for them. So it wasn't as painful. And, you know, as God would have it, it all came back around <laughs> as we go through the story. <laughs> and in, and in profound ways too, like, and we'll get into that in a minute. Exactly. But, okay. So, so you went from there to talk about the IT product. Exactly. So now now here's the thing about it is I would do both. I did both, right? So I kept playing. I kept 
doing shows, kept doing concerts, kept, but I just did it locally within the New York area and with folks that I knew that were close to me. So I didn't have to go on the road and I couldn't make a living living just doing that by itself, but I made good money doing it. And I had, I, I was able to enjoy it and I kept my skills up. But at the time I had developed some leadership skills with the ministry stuff I talked, I mentioned when I got into computers I love reading. So, I, so I, you know, I would say in 93, I literally couldn't tell you how to turn one on. And then by 94, I had read probably about 10 or 12 books on it and was doing a whole bunch of different things with it and ended up working for EDS and Xerox and some other accounts, did a bunch of certifications, became a consultant and just grew in that space. And then, you know, I also, as I was growing, I always look at my life and go, you know, what am I really good at? And I realized that even in music, I was really good at organizing chaos. Like I was just, mm-hmm. I was the organized musician. I wasn't the, the guy who was like, yeah, I'm a musician, dude, whatever. I, I was uh-huh. <laughs> I was the guy to be on time at the rehearsals, having everyone all organized and everything. So project management became like, that became like music to my ears, if you will. Mm-hmm. And picking up the computer was like music to my ears at a time where if you could spell IT, you could get in. And so, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, but it is interesting though, because I don't know if this is like this in the music world, but in my creative profession, I made up a story in my head that if I shifted so like out of the creative realm that I was going to be perceived by my, my peers, my colleagues differently or oddly, or somehow not have the same kind of level of commitment that they had. Did you experience any of that? I didn't because when I was playing, I always made it a point to, when I was playing, to play all genres of music. So uh-huh. I played classical, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart. I played, you know, upright, you know, Charlie Parker, uh-huh. John Coltrane. I played, you know, uh-huh. funk music. I played, so I could read or I could play by ear. So if someone, someone called me and said, hey, I got a Bill Blast gig and we're playing charts. Okay, got it. I'll be there. So I was, I was able to play classical music gigs, you know, studio gigs, funk gigs, jazz gigs. And I, I, I totally enjoyed playing, being that diverse because it made life interesting and it mm. made music fun. So I kept my skills up around that. Mm. But what was interesting is as this journey went on, I began to see the correlation between music teams or music ensembles that I was playing with and business teams. Mm. Because at one time, as a consultant, teams were like 20 people. I mean, 30 people. It's just huge teams. And then because of the economy, because of technology, teams started shrinking. And it became a group of five, then two or three or four. And it's still not that way now. It's just small, agile, small teams that come in and do consulting more than these huge teams that used to be there because of technology and so on and so forth. Kind of like big bands down to quartets and quintets and trios. Mm. And I noticed that profitable, effective, powerful business project that delivered value to the customer, made their lives better, delivered true business in, uh, innovation, it was like working in a jazz ensemble. Hmm. You know, everyone came with their skill. Everyone had practiced their skill and had become experts at what they did. Hmm. But when we came together and we listened to the sponsor of what they wanted, then we forgot about how good we were in our individual skills. And we go, okay, so for us to do this, you're going to have to take this role. You're going to take that role. We're going to support you here. It became like playing jazz. Hmm. Okay, we're going we're gonna to play the chart and you're going to solo. 
because mm-hmm. you're the lead right now. And then we get to this part, you're going to solo and we're all going to support you. Mm-hmm. And it became this handoff and the audience was the customer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I've always, because of music, thought of my customer as, well, I have customers who sit on the front row, but I also have customers that I don't even see that are in the balcony. All of them are participating in this show. And if I set up the stage right and we perform right, we want to make this show interesting enough for the ones who are on the front row, but also we want to make sure we're engaging those who are in the back row or in the balcony that you know can't even say we're looking like ants on the stage to them, but we want to give them a great experience as well. So it really forced me to start digging into culture. Because when you're rolling out major initiatives in, uh, to organizations, it's usually not the technology that fails. It's the lack of planning of the culture change that fails. Hmm. And it's usually the people who are not in the room that can either make or break your project. Because they're like the customer who's going to either, uh, the audience who's going to buy the ticket and come to the concert Or they're going to say, yeah, that was a good show, but it was okay. It was hard to hear the music. I couldn't see them. The the speakers were fuzzy. Well, you've lost them Mm. because now they don't even know what you're doing on stage. Where the people in the front row love it. And isn't that the way most projects that fail, fail? Mm. The people in the room are going, we don't understand why it failed. And the people on the outside said, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, there's a massive right? disconnect. So so when you say culture, you're not just talking about the, the team on the stage. You're talking about the entire environment. Exactly. Now, think about it this way. My first book is called Culture is the Base. Mm. So I want you to think about, and if you're listening, I want you to think about your favorite song, mm. your favorite band. Mm. Listen to the intro. Now, what do you mostly hear? You're going to mostly hear bass and drums, maybe a little lead guitar, maybe a little melody, Hmm. but you're going to hear mostly bass and drums. And as soon as you hear that bass and drums, you know, the artists, you do, you know, their style, you know how they dress. Yeah. You know, you know, you know, whether you're swaying or whether you're dancing. Hmm. And if it's a really good song, not only do you hear the bass, but you feel it. That's why we turn, you know, the, we want the good speakers in our car and we turn it up because now we can feel that bass. We can feel that rhythm. Mm. Well, think about when you walked into your favorite store, whether it's a grocery store, whether it's Nordstrom, whether it's some other place that you went to that you, you just, man, I love that store. Mm. Before anybody comes up to you and say anything, what do you feel? You feel the vibe. You see the people. People are engaged. The service people are there. You know that they're they're there to help you. Before you even really have a conversation or, or even pick up merchandise, you, you're experiencing it. And to me, that's the culture. Mm. And so when, when I did the book, that book, I basically looked at a lot of case studies from Harvard, from MIT, from the Wharton School, because I love peer-reviewed research. Yeah. Because we're peer-reviewed, it means that other people have looked at it and said, hey, this is the real deal. It's scientifically sound. It makes sense. It's this is this is good science. And so what I found was that in my review, there were seven things that kept coming up. And it was that you had to have a great vision. There were you had to have values that were like beha- that guarded, guided your behavior. You had to get buy-in from everyone on the team. You had to have great stories. You had to have best practices, a great environment, and then get people to execute. And so that became the framework of my first book, Culture is the Bass. And it also was a time that the song All About That Bass was Totally. <laughs> totally. So, so good timing. So, so I, I am intrigued on so many levels here and I, I want to go down a couple of rabbit holes. One, 
when you were talking about the progression of individuals who have skills who are invited to collaborate and to voluntarily recognize in a in coordinated way to voluntarily recognize, okay, this is the moment where I'm on lead and this is the moment where I'm on support. And exactly that kind of shift. What's the first word that comes to mind to me, this both in the context of music, but especially in my context around business and working with folks and teams is the word trust. Because if I don't talk a little bit about the importance of trust, but really how do you cultivate that trust in a way that is organic and natural and people aren't overthinking it, they just find themselves willingly playing their part. We'll be right back after this short break. Ty, you and I have talked about what you're trying to do with your customers and you've described Cantilever as a hospitality company and you make websites. What what does that even mean? So you know how you go to a lot of these websites and you're a number or you're trapped and they're just trying to get as much ad revenue out of you as they can while you're on the article. You know what I mean? Imagine that you're trying to get a message out, but the experience that people are having is awkward and inconvenient. So at Cantilever, what we try to do is give people an experience that is really comfortable and welcoming and really think of what they're trying to do when they come to a website. So instead of bombarding them with with ads, we're thinking, where are they at in their lives that they're in this place where they're reading this article and what are they trying to get out of it? We try to make that really, really easy. We call that principle digital hospitality. You can do hospitality online. That's actually possible. It is, but it requires a translation of that hospitality skill set into a digital environment. And one of the things that's really powerful about trying to do hospitality online is that it involves a lot of technology. And there are countless ways that you can build incredible, powerful code bases that are oriented around a user's experience. So they're not just there to do something cool. You're doing cool things so that you can give people a better and better experience. If you're listening to this and you want to do that for your website, go to cantilever.co. Check them out. For, for musicians, it's easy, right? And here's what, I mean. here's what I mean. It's hard, but it's easy. When you go to a concert and you see a band on stage and they're smiling at each other, they know the music, they're in tune, they're playing, they're, I mean, some of them are over there closed, they're, they got their eyes closed yeah. and they know where everybody's at. They know, yeah. they know if John slows down playing his solo, they know how to slow down. They have listened, they, they've embodied the, the vision of the music to a point where they trust the music, they trust themselves, they trust the people who they're playing with, and they're mentally, emotionally, and even spiritually in tune with them. And so they trust the process. And so when it comes to business teams, it's it's pretty much the same thing. I don't think it has to be as difficult as we have to say, we have to, you know, we got to trust this one, they've got to trust... No, if we come in and we got a we got the the big picture idea and we know that our intent is to deliver some great value to the customer and we've gotten to know the people on our team, then we know we got to trust each other to make this work. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with with so and so so long that I know that what they can do. Even if it's a new team, you interview, you 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 have conversations and you do exercises or things to get to know them. You know, I talk about an exercise in my book that I learned from uh, a certification I got on neuro- neuroscience called Rules of Engagement. And it's all about when you kick off a meeting, you get everybody in a room to write down on sticky notes, what are the things they love about teams that they've been a part of before, are great projects that they love about. 
What's what was the values of that team? And then they start putting them on the walls, and pretty soon you you end up building what's called an infinity diagram, where they're columns of some of the same values from different people that didn't even know each other. And then they start realizing, wait a minute, we actually have more in common hmm. than we have not. There's going to be some outliers. Sure. But they're, they're going to find out because everyone wants integrity. Everybody wants trust. Everybody wants to be to have fun. Everybody wants to, to do good work. And as they put these things on the wall, they're saying, wait a minute, you, you value the same things I value. And once we realize that the folks that we're in the room with value some of the same things that we value, we automatically begin to trust. And here's the other part. And I, I learned this through, again, a, a, the certification on neuroscience with Judith Glazer, who wrote the book Conversational Intelligence. She passed away a few years ago hmm. from cancer. But before she did, I had a chance to study with her for a couple of years through this program. And one of the things she says in her book and, and through the program was that in point zero seven seconds, you know if you can trust someone in a conversation, hmm. even virtually, even when we're on Zoom, having this conversation or hmm. Riverside or whatever whatever technology we're using, right? Because our brains, when we have a conversation, it's not just verbal, it's chemical. Hmm. If we're having a great conversation, our brains begin to produce oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, and GABA. These are all positive neurochemicals. And when we get those neurochemicals, we go like, wow, this was great. I feel so, the experience was fun. I feel great about this. This is awesome. Those are the kind of words you hear. Now, if we walk into a room and we hear things like, you know, what I call downregulating, critical, negative, blah, blah, mm. blah, then our brains start producing cortisol and mm. adrenaline. We walk away with a tight neck and we're feeling stressed and we're, willing, we're looking at a watch going, when is this going to be over? My goodness, this is killing me. So when you do an exercise like rules of engagement and everybody starts realizing that they're, they have a lot of things in common more than not, their brains automatically starts producing all the positive neurochemicals. You can establish exercises and, 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 and things to produce that in your team, even virtually. So that, so that the team can learn how to work together. They can look forward to the meetings. And plus, you know, you model the behavior you want others to pick up on. You want to model that behavior. And by doing that, you can then coach and care, care for people as you go along. But then you can create that trust dynamic. Because trust is, is it's really a, a sense that, one, you got my best interest at heart. And I know that because we value the same things. Mm. If my it's, values are totally different than yours, then it's going to be hard to build trust. Yeah, it's interesting, Gerald. I, I have a hunch you and I are very different in our come from, yet I experienced that the moment we were on the, we started this call. There's this weird sense of like, we don't know each other. We have totally different backgrounds, but there was a, a, a concern. Like I, I shared uh, offline folks who are listening, you didn't hear this part, but I was sharing with Gerald before we started that my the reason I invited Gerald on was because he leverages the metaphor of jazz as a mechanism to help communicate around collaboration in a culture. And right. I my favorite album of all time is Miles Davis Kind of Blue. And I, I I'm told from the lore that Miles Davis maybe would was a, a tough cookie to be friends with, but in terms of music, there wasn't much better. Man, just high, high level John Coltrane, like all the all the team and people that they were doing things with, they had the ability to like on the fly create magic. And and sometimes in like just a couple takes, 
Like they were just yes. go, it's just incredible. Like when I looked at the history of Kind of Blue and how they made that that album, I'm like, how is that possible that they didn't like refine and refine and refine and refine? They just like turn the recorders on and get after it. And exactly. Anyway, so I look at that and I'm like, that is what I dream about is when I'm in a collaboration is to bring whatever I can in terms of my contribution to the table, but play and dance in a way where we're creating magic. I want, I think a lot of folks who want that. Exactly. Well, and you think about it, it's like, you know, there's, there's so many different dynamics and dimensions to mm. that level of performance because it's kind of like what's called being in the zone, right? Right. It's one thing though for me to be in the zone, like in flow state, but yes. me, me in flow state versus me in flow state with other people, that's complicated. It, it, well, you know, think about it this way. If you've ever seen or even heard about two grandfather clocks being sitting next to each other mm. and one starts going, you know, one's, you know, is turned on and it starts kind of oscillating and going back and forth and the other one starts going back and forth. And at first they're doing this where one's going in and another one's going out and the other one's going in. And then pretty soon they start doing this. They kind of synchronize. Think about it this way. If you listen to classical music, Mozart, most of it's around 20 hertz or let's say alpha wave music, your brain slows down to that music. That's why at a really nice, classy restaurant where they want you to stay and spend money, they don't play rock and roll. <laughs> They're going to play Mozart because they want, right. you, they want your brain to slow down right. and for you to spend more time and relax. So there's a part of us where if I'm oscillating at a level that is in the zone, and we're playing music, and we're working together, and you're you've been working on your instrument, and you playing music, and we start playing together. Pretty soon, we synchronize, even neurologically, even at the same brain wavelength, we synchronize. So that's where it's much more complicated than just hey, let's play music together because you can get two guys who aren't really that great try to play good together and it's like still doesn't sound that great mm. or you can get two guys who are like amazing individually but then they come together collectively and they have a higher purpose for their playing yes and their brains and the band actually synchronizes to what to your point to where now it's like holy smokes they did that with two takes or one take and it totally. sounds like it's like how did they create this magic and that happens all the time for musicians. Mm. And here's something else that I learned that I put in my book, uh, Workplace Jazz, that I actually learned as I was writing the book. And it's about whole brain integration. Whole brain integration happens when... I remember you you, ta you talked a little bit about this with Jack Canfield. I want, I'm so excited that you brought this up. Yes, yes. Yes, exactly. So basically, whole brain integration is when your right and left hemisphere are in sync and working together. In the middle of our brains, we have something called the corpus callosum. It's like a, a bunch of fibers that connect both sides. And the more we have whole brain integration where both grow together, the stronger that fiber connection gets and the more fibers are created hmm. to connect the right and left hemisphere. It, it's amazing that someone like Albert Einstein had that, but he was also a musician. Most people hmm. don't know that. Henry Ford had that, but he was also a violinist. He was a trained violinist. In fact, Henry Ford owned the largest classical collection of violins hmm. in the United States during hmm. his lifetime. And so anyone who's in the arts, it's because when you're playing, you're playing on so many different levels. You're playing with the big picture of the music in mind. 
if you're reading music or you're looking at the notes or you're playing the details, so you got the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere going. It's a physical kinetic process. It's also a visual process. So you got the back visual lobe going. You have so many parts of the brain that's going. And so it basically starts working together. But if you're doing this as a child, then you naturally grow up in your life with the ability to see the big picture and the details. So here's my question. So what if we weren't blessed with the gift of playing music early in our life and and uh, we're tone deaf and and rhythmically rhythmically challenged and uh, I'm trying to find out all I'm just self describing. Right no, I, I got you. I got you. Well, here's the other thing that here's the other other way that you can de- develop whole brain integration, which okay. was amazing. Meditation. That was the only other way. It was through quieting the mind and getting into a practice of meditation. Outside of playing music, being a musician, and meditation, we it doesn't give the brain time to synchronize both hemispheres. And so that's why people who, like the Dalai Lama and others who've meditated for a long period of time in their lives, they just have this calmness about them. And they're and if you've ever been in a room with someone like that, their presence and their calmness impacts the other person or impacts the whole room. It's like the kind of person that comes in and changes the room. It's because there's something else going on that's at a different level. Kind of a left field question. Is your faith tradition still active in your life? It is. It, it, even as you're describing that, like that idea of slowing down, I'm I'm a I'm a Jesus guy. I, I I'm into uh, a, a routine. I'm pretty rigid actually in terms of how I have a rule of life, how I start my mornings, how I do my day, how I end my day. And for me, it's like a lifeline. Like it's like if I can't do that, the world feels like it spins me up. And yeah. I, it, I I I would attribute it to to mental health if I'm just talking to someone on the street. But for folks who have this common lexicon, I, I'll speak directly. Like, no, it's actually, I feel like it's slowing me down and grounding me into more of reality than the spun up things that are going on around me. And I'm curious if that is true in your own life. Do you find that your faith influences your ability to do what you're describing? It does. It does. And But I've added, I've added some things to it, and I don't think it's outside of my faith. But like, in my, I have a morning routine where I'll get up and I will I will spend time listening to meditative music and I'll write out my goals for today mm. or my life goals. Mm. I'll literally handwrite them just to kind of focus and dream about where my life is going. Mm. Then I'll do some yoga. And now yoga is just stretching exercises, but I'll listen to meditative music while I do that. I'll meditate and then I'll do my Bible study and prayer because now I'm like in a really calm right. meditative state, right? Mm-hmm. And so I do that mostly, I would say, not 100% every morning, but I do that on a regular basis that has become a habit. And I feel bad if, I, I, I feel like I'm not normal if I can't do that. Mm-hmm. So I have to start my day off that way. But by doing that, you're actually, again, priming your brain mm-hmm. for where you're going. Our brains are goal-seeking missiles. And if we give them a target, then the reticular activating system in our brain shuts everything out and starts seeing everything that we want. And if we don't see it, it starts attracting the things that we want. So we find ourselves in uh, in rooms with people that can help us move forward or that we can add value to. Uh, It's amazing, but it's, it's, it's the way, you know, the, the brain, the mind is so powerful if we tap into it, but also if we slow down and learn more about it and, and leverage it. But it's also the ability for our faith and our, our awareness that, you know, there's there's a bigger picture 
to life than the little things that we think is important. And to me, it's like God has a a much larger plan for our lives than we can even imagine. So I have one last question to ask you in just one second. But before I do, let me say this. If you're at home listening and you are, your interest is peaked, you're like, what is up with this? Maybe it's reminded you of something in your past, moments in your history where you have integrated things like crazy ideas, like the, the, the rational brain with the creative brain or, you know, the, these music metaphors, if any of these things are resonating and there's something in this that, you know, you feel a little kind of urge in your, in your gut, pay attention to it. Yes. Act on it right now. Go out right now and go get Workplace Jazz or Culture is the Base, whichever draws you first. Get the first one there. But get into this conversation, friends. I can't recommend it enough. And that's if I want you to picture you, you're having a conversation with like a, a lost nephew, like someone you care about. You don't really know yeah. very well. He came yeah. into your life. And let's say they're in their late 20s, early 30s, experienced a little of life, but not a lot of life yet. And they they're they're describing their life to you as things like man it feels like my the world has me i don't have it it feels like i i live out of my inbox and my inbox tells me what to do or i i feel like i'm just chasing my tail i don't even have a lot of meaning in my life life is hard and i don't know what to do how do you what do you say what questions do you ask what advice do you give and i want to give you the last word How, how do you have that conversation i would basically say you know, in life, we can either be like a steamship or we can either be driftwood. Driftwood, when it's thrown out in the, in, in the water, just goes wherever the waves take it, right? It has no engine. It has no purpose, has no direction, and it just is just wherever the waves take it. A steam engine, it may not, it's not a speedboat, but it has some direction. It has direction and it has an engine and it has you know, a, a source of direction that it's going. And I would say that, you know, our lives can either be one or the other. We can either be tossed around or we can have a purpose for our lives. And and the, and the purpose that we come up with, I'll, I'll put it this way, the way I came up with my purpose, and I, I would share this with a person, think about your 80th or 85th birthday. This is a great, you know, example from like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I think I got it from Stephen Covey. Think about your 85th birthday and your parents are there, if they're still alive, your brothers and sisters are there, your children are there, your grandchildren are there, your coworkers are there, your your classmates are there. What would you want them to say about you? Because the things that you would want them to say about you are your deepest values. And what would you want society to say about you? And then I would say, from that, you work backwards and you go, okay, if that's what I want people to say about me, then how do I align my life now? What goals and things that am I going to, that working on right now, that's going to, that's going to make that true when I get there. I would share with them, one of the greatest things I've learned was to write down your goals as affirmations Hmm. and hand write them every day. Because when you write something by hand, it forces the neurons in your brain to come closer so that it just kind of like makes it where that becomes the target of where you're going. It it activates your reticular activating system so that you see that goal and you start attracting things that you want. And then you find people around you that can help you bring those things to, to, to life, whether it's coaches, friends, and so on. 
But by being that steam engine and saying, hey, I can have a goal and a purpose and, and have direction for my life. And even though the waves are coming and pushing me back this way and that way, because I have this engine inside of me that's going in a certain direction, then I'm going to keep moving forward and I'm going to get more control from that standpoint of my life, more than waking up every day, looking at my inbox or looking at life and going, okay, what do I got to get done? Let me turn on the news. Let me do this. And next thing you know, it's like life is just beating you up and you're being tossed around. And that's not a fun place to live, but it's so much easier. I would always tell my kids, life is where we either have to discipline ourselves or life will discipline us. Right. Mm. We discipline ourselves with the steam engine mentality of I'm going to have goals and direction for my life or life will discipline us. And us being in control of that is a lot, lot better than life disciplining us. This was episode nine, season six of the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge is made possible thanks to cantilever.co and tellmeyourdreams.com. For all our past evergreen episodes with guests like Seth Godin, James Clear, Ann Handley, Ryan Holiday, Jazz Ampafar, Donald Miller, Mike Michalowicz, Sarah Green Carmichael, Brad Montague, Kevin Kelly, Todd Henry, Scott Stratton, Chase Reeves, Gretchen Rubin, Chris Gillibo, Starley Kine, and more, go to convergepodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. See you next time. An Ironic Media Production. Visit us at ironicmedia.com.